when it comes to polyamory or open relationships, one of the first people that I can remember hearing talk publicly about them is Margaret Cho. This was in 2012 on The Wendy Williams Show, and she spoke about her relationship with her husband and also her boyfriend. Here's a clip. I have a boyfriend, yes. Okay. And we are, in, a, in our relationship, monogamous. Okay, but, but you still sleep with your husband. No, I've decided right now, I know this is so complicated, I know it just sounds really bizarre, um, but I uh, just want to be in this one relationship at this time. Yeah, now, now is your husband in a relationship with another woman yes. out there? Okay, yes. so, but you guys are married. Yes. Now, I know it's cliche to say, but some cliches are true, and that's the case here when I say that Margaret Cho has always been ahead of her time. In her comedy, in interviews, she's shown this comfort and willingness to engage in conversations about the things that tend to scare people the most to talk about. I'm talking about sex, leather, masturbation, sex, being dominatrix, sex, BDSM, sex. Did I mention sex? We talk a lot about sex, and I wanted to play this interview, which we recorded in 2019, originally for the Luminary app. I wanted to play it because one, I love it, and two, to kick off our newest season. That's right, we're back this coming Tuesday with all new interviews, so mark your calendars, please. And until then, I'm Jeffrey Masters, and from that Advocate Magazine in partnership with GLAAD, please enjoy this LGBT Q&A with Margaret Cho. You've said that the basis for your comedy is the feeling of being an outsider, mm -hmm. that it all comes back to that. And yet, over the course of your career, culture has really changed in that we've become more comfortable talking about sex, more comfortable talking about open relationships. Do you feel like we've caught up to you in a sense? I think so. I think culture is caught up in a lot of ways. I'm so late to the party, but I'm watching Assassination of Gianni Versace. And I was around during 90s gayness throughout the the series, it's a lot about homophobia and how prevalent it was in the 90s, so much so that we didn't even feel like we could participate in things like laws or life, you know? And so now I think there is a really different attitude towards gayness, towards sex, towards different kinds of partnerings, towards different kinds of gender. You know, there's a lot of movement and a lot of change. Of course, lots going backwards too. But in the trajectory of gay rights, we've really come an incredibly long way also to have been around the beginning of that and, and kind of witnessed and talked about and in comedy throughout that. It does feel like, you know, maybe now I'm starting to feel like a bit of an insider <laughs> getting there. That's a really interesting adjustment for you. Mm -hmm. And it's good. I mean, that's the whole reason why I wanted to be in comedy. I watched uh, Joan Rivers in the 80s and she had such a rapport with the audience and they already knew her catchphrases that can we talk? Can we talk? Like as if we've talked before. And so that familiarity made me think, wow, comedian has instant friends. And that was really kind of all I was looking for was instant friends. You know, you mentioned the gay rights movement. Compared to gay people, bisexuality and the understanding and awareness has remained relatively flat. Mm -hmm. There's not been this big cultural touchstone of the way that like Will and Grace changed it for gay people, yeah, yeah, you know? Yeah, uh, Beyond representation for bi people, do you have any grand theories to why it still is so misunderstood? I think it's because people use bisexuality as the lie before I get to the truth. It's like... Being bisexual is usually the last lie because you're, you're acknowledging your own difference. You're acknowledging your otherness. 
but you're not willing to go all the way. So the buy, to say that you're buy, it's a lot of people like when they're coming out, they'll stop at buy at their first utterance of who I am. I'm going to give you bisexual. I'm going to give this lie to my parents so that maybe there's hope for them to hang on to this idea that half of me could be straight. Before we we had gay marriage and before we had this idea of like, you know, being able to have a partner and have families, you know, like bisexuality uh, gave you a little bit of a sliver of that ticket to normalcy. You didn't get the whole ticket because obviously you are other, but it's something that people could also use to be like lorded over others as we're the more dangerous ones because we're bisexual. So often like glam rock goes through a bi phase as we see in like Lou Reed or Iggy Pop or David Bowie, of course. And those are the sort of the famous examples. So bisexuality is kind of this strange thing of like dipping your toe into the pool of otherness, but not all in. And so for so many queer people, what you're saying is that they come out as bisexual and then gay or then lesbian. And so because it was like a lie for me, I think it was a, it's a lie for you too. Yes. So it must be that you're doing the same thing, but you're taking it so far. It's kind of this thing where also bisexuality can be snatched back. You couldn't hold on to Angelina Jolie's bisexuality for very long or, or Anna Panquin's or maybe Julianne Huff's or whatever. For guys, it's a lot tougher because for men, all that anybody can imagine you is is being gay too. So guys have much more of a strident sense of identity when it comes to gayness. Like you um, don't have that same kind of fluidity or we don't accept it as a society from men as we do with women. I also feel like for like queer men, we come out and we get loud and like mm-hmm. queer women come out and then they stay at home. <laughs> it is different. It's a different experience. Like our gayness is worn in different a different fashion. Sometimes women are kind of looked at sort of like more about going into this establishment mentality or going into like the family mentality. So you have that sort of idea of like the the lesbian who has a lot of kids and a lot of animals. And that that's sort of like they're the nurturers at home where gay men are out making strides, doing all of the things, you know, decorating homes or whatever we, we, these stereotypes that we have about what gay people do, what lesbians do. Those stereotypes are archetypes. They're rooted in a kind of envisioning of like, what can we actually go and be? Because my sexuality is not accepted. Maybe if I do something that's sort of preordained, whether that's styling, being a florist, doing those sort of aesthetic jobs, those aesthetic things that, you know, gay men are purported to have, that uh, the eye, um, as we see, of course, queer eye. There's a lot of good things that happen with the sort of aspirational sort of archetypes that we can be, but there's also a limiting of like, we're not imagining that we can be other things too. And there is this like option paralysis. Mm-hmm. We've shucked this standard mm-hmm. from that society's told us is right. And it's like, oh God, do we have to now reconsider all standards for everything? Yeah, it's 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 really deep and it gets to be a lot. So it's it's almost like society puts so many things on us and and we're like, where do where does my desire to do this begin and where does the societal conditioning begin? It's very hard to know. Ellen has told the story about before she came out, she would have conversations with other closeted lesbians like Mm -hmm. Melissa Etheridge Mm -hmm. and being like, oh my God, we're both in the closet. There's no one out. Did you have any camaraderie like that with any queer women or bisexuals back then? I think it, well, there was more fear around it. Like I remember I was sitting on Leah Delaria's lap and like, gosh, 1991, (laughs) years ago. And my manager at the time was so panicked that I was gay. And he was like, you know, you have to present yourself as straight. I don't care what you do. 
or who you are, as far as we're going, you're straight. And I was just really scared into a feeling of like, wow, this feels really scary and unsafe. Of course, somebody like Leah, who is such a, we're, she and I sort of made up the sort of like very old school feminine butch dynamic that you, you can't help but sit in her lap. You know, it's just that kind of a thing. I think for us, it wasn't as easy to kind of slip into any other sort of way of being because it was just so, it was so placed on us, you know? Wait, how old were you during that story? I was about 20. Oh, because 21. I always assumed you were always out of the closet and like open about being bi. I always was. But then at that time, it was like, I didn't even know we could even call it that. You know, like I didn't even know what you could say because even though I had grown up in a very gay positive, environment. You know, my parents owned a gay bookstore and there was um, so many examples of very, very exciting things happening around me, you know, with like Harvey Milk and this gay pride parade that was growing and growing and growing every year. But there was like a real confusion around bisexuality. Even like my parents, they're fine with gayness. They're fine with straightness. They have a real problem with bi. They really don't get that because that's like you're not deciding. Did you, when you were coming out, wonder if you were just a lesbian? Yeah. Well, I initially identified as a lesbian. And then it wasn't the right thing because I, I was also attracted to men, too. So it wasn't the right thing um, to say. I couldn't just say, well, I'm, you know, just a lesbian. It's not as easy as that. You were saying you were 20 years old and with the Leah Delaria story. Mm-hmm. Was it easier to just not talk about your sexuality and, like, quote, unquote, hide back then? I guess so. I think because there was just this assumption that we just didn't exist. So there was no, there was just no real sense of any of that. Like people just didn't ask those questions because it was, you know, too much information in a way. Like people were, showbiz was very different too. You know, there was a very curated image that you were kind of putting out there. And I was so young and so much of my comedy was about queer stuff and and, and about San Francisco and, and, and about sex. So it was impossible to really kind of, Get away from that. And have you always been so comfortable talking about sex? Like, is that just who you are? I think so. Just because I started comedy so young, it just seemed like at that time, it was easy to talk about sex because it was easy to, that was a way to get people to really pay attention. And then also I was really discovering a lot. Say, I was at these weird day jobs. So I was working at this lesbian BDSM collective where they were making like leather dildos and stuff and they had play parties. And so I was helping them open their retail store. I was learning all about BDSM and learning all about all this different kind of stuff. And sex was different too, because we were looking for a way that we could still be queer, but also in the age of AIDS, like what does safe sex mean? And how do we still make it exciting and fun? And, you know, because dental dams were not fun. And and so we wanted to figure out how do we make sex dangerous for us, but not really dangerous in that, you know, like we're not fluid bonding. So BDSM was a perfect place to celebrate that. And to explore that even further. So talking about that was really, it was so, I was fascinated because I was discovering it as it was happening. And, um, you know, it was uh, something that was very appealing to talk about too. And so for you, BDSM, that came out of the AIDS crisis? Yes, yes. That is so interesting. Yeah, we were trying to figure out how to keep sex hot and keep it interesting. And, and it, dangerous, and like dangerous. you said. Yeah, like what BDSM does is it really puts the danger back into sexuality when I think so much of it 
that you're you sort of think about mentally like about AIDS and about how much so much of it was like we're separating ourselves we have to have like this layer of latex between us and the world so how can we now go back and really like be gay and be in it and be of it you know and and so BDSM was the answer then and so when you say that you have a history of alternative sexuality are mm-hmm. you talking about BDSM yeah I've never actually heard that term alternative sexuality yeah it is very it's very alternative and it's very but it's also very San Francisco San Francisco is like so much like if, if you're going anywhere you're low-key listening to people talking about their limits like what's a hard limit what's a soft limit you know people are always like negotiating their scenes what were your limits my limits I don't like blood play I'm very I I don't like a stingy pain don't come at me with the cane no canes I'm not particularly fond of race play however some people really like it I don't like it oh I do love a hood (laughs) I love a hood and I love a human play there's like a human puppy play park so I love having like the human dogs that's the great one too so then you get into sort of furry territory where people are like very like animals I love that. But I'm not, I don't know if that's so, so much about a sexual impulse as much as it's about playtime. Because I love so animals. That's interesting. Yeah. Do you still engage in BDSM? No, you know, you get, for me, I, I get polyamory fatigue and I get total BDSM fatigue. It takes so much energy in terms of negotiating and what you want and what you're doing. And um, I just don't have the energy for it. And also the processing that happens. So I did get tired of it. It's to me, it's very stuck in the uh, maybe the 90s and early 2000s. But I do love it. And I do love like the Folsom Street Fair is amazing. Like the game. And then I love the gay men are always at the forefront of leather sex. Like they're the ones that are inventing stuff. They're the ones who are setting the tone for the future. And uh, that's really amazing because there's a faction of S&M too. It, sometimes it gets kind of mega. It's weird because it's like it attracts a lot of uh, very conservative people who are blue collar. So when you see this mix of very kind of conservative types who are looking at gay men in this very idealized way, then I think that's really fascinating because you have this thing of like, well, you know, we may be conservative, but we're all still freaky too. So that there's a kind of understanding. That's what I really loved about the leather community is that they had all of these people that you wouldn't even realize are total fans that are really into this and, and, and really admiring what gay men do. And I think that's cool. And so are you getting to know people in that community to know that they are like, um, they lean more MAGA? Yeah. Like at that time, they wouldn't, you know, we, we wouldn't have words for, we didn't have MAGA then, you know, they, but they were just, you know, I guess Republicans or people who were like, had guns, people who were like, just not the kind of people that we would hang out with or that I would. And so I was amazed that they were like, so open-minded when it came to leather, came to gay men, came to like, there's this like S&M club in North Hollywood. They're always in North Hollywood. So I met a lot of these different guys there, these different very hetero, very heteronormative, very conservative guys, but who were like into leather sex. And, and so oftentimes these gay leather organizations would rent their play spaces. And so all of these straight guys would want to come and watch because the gay guys were doing stuff that you couldn't believe and that you had to see. And they would want to watch the gay guys fucking. Yeah, so that they could get ideas on what they could do to be inventive when they go with their submissives and do whatever. Wow. So, I mean, it was like, I've never even, I, I think it's such an amazing thing that these 
yeah, super like super straight, some ex-military, some like cops, you know, like these guys that you just would never even ever think to even talk to or have a conversation with, but they were all like a glow because they got to watch these leather daddies do scenes with their bottoms that they were just so enamored of, you know? So that's cool. Wow. Such a big part of sex is the power dynamics Mm -hmm. that you're describing. How were those affected when you started having a growing celebrity? Well, there there were other people who were in different areas of the entertainment community. There was one guy that I knew. He was um, an entertainment lawyer. He was deep in the scene. He had a junk, which is a ship. It was parked in like, well, I don't know if they parked boats, but he had like a, a junk, like a Chinese, like a, a yacht, but it was a, it was a legitimate junk that he was trying to sell. And he was very flamboyant and very original and very, did these sexual things that were just so amazing. And uh, he had very famous clientele. If you're like kind of in Hollywood, there are people in entertainment. One guy I knew, he was the unit publicist for for Dawson's Creek. So there was so you, like- So you were not the outlier. No, no. There was a lot of freaky people who were like in a scene that had, you know, like there were elements of they were close to famous people, they knew famous people, or there was sort of famous people around. Um, so there wasn't a sense of like, oh, this is odd. Or And at that time, there was no camera phones, no, no smartphones. So you didn't have sort of photographic evidence of things happening. You just sort of had word of mouth and people talking about what they were doing. What's also weird is they would always have chili. Like if you were going to these sex parties, they would always serve some kind of chili. And That is um, the weirdest thing you've said yet in this interview. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, that's a weird th- I thing to eat if you're going to have sex, you know, public yeah. sex with people. But I mean, I guess you have to keep your strength up. And uh, so they would have chili and chocolate chip cookies and sometimes a very seasoned salt. I think at a sex party, it was the first time I ever had a Stacy's pita chip. Pretty sure. <laughs> I'm fine with the scat play, but not the Stacy's. <laughs> well, you know, it is, it's very salty. I Which do, one? I like, I, <laughs> they're, both, they're both salty. I do like a sun chip myself, a multigrain. Then, you know, but it's, you know, it's all carbs. I guess, you know, like they're just, people need to, you know, be healthy and you know, I feel like I'm still trying to figure out what I like and what I don't like. And I'm mm-hmm. still questioning my nature of my desire. Yeah. Do you still feel like that? Yeah, because, uh, you know, you do discover things. Like, I, I really was trying to be adventurous and I tried to discover different things that I liked. And, you know, like I had this idea, like I really want to be fisted, but I could never ever get anybody to get their thumb all the way in. So I felt like a failure at that, like, because they couldn't get that. And it's a thumb joint. It's not going to go in. It's just too much. So no matter what, you know, some things you just can't do. I think you're always discovering that. So now I'm on a new journey of like, what does this look like? I have this idea that, because now I'm single. So my thought is I would like to try to remain unpartnered for the rest of my life. And I'm going to really try. And and why do you want to try that? Well, because I've been partnered for so long for my adult life. I've had partners um, pretty much, you know, since I, you know, was like 25 or whatever. So like, I feel like now that I'm 50, I should really give it a college, a college try to see if I could just be a lady alone. So And so why do you want to try that for the rest of your life and not just for a couple of years? Well, I mean, it's just to see like every time I've been partnered, it's always been this issue. Like I've always really wished to be alone and I would really like to give that a fair shot because that's what I've always wanted. And so um, maybe that 
solitary life is really important, but I do want to have sex still. That's a very confusing thing to me too, because I have not been um, single in the age of apps. <laughs> so I'm like trying to start that journey to see what it looks like. That's so interesting. Mm -hmm. I mentioned representation for bisexual people. Mm -hmm. I think that it's so important just in general. And we never see single people represented on screen where it's not like a fatal flaw. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, we never see a single person go home and they're not crying at the end of the right. day. Right. And it's, it's so wonderful to celebrate that. I, I went on a vacation myself and I had the best time. And it was so fulfilling and I was like I've missed out on this for I for because of the dream of being partnered and this goes for being gay or straight or bi or whatever the dream of being partnered is such a pervasive one in our society that you can't escape it and people who are alone are suspect yeah you know like that confirmed bachelor like what's wrong I think that when people like you are so comfortable talking about sex mm -hmm. that people often think like oh it's an addiction like mm -hmm. she's going home every night and she's like fucking every guy she sees or a woman <laughs> or non-binary yeah, person yeah, yeah, yeah. but like that's not actually the case though right no no I mean I think like it's sort of like I, I do love sex but I, I realize that I can't really get anything out of it you know like the thing about like sex addiction is, is like you're really trying to look for some sort of salvation within that interaction and that's not going to happen. But I do get some physical satisfaction out of it and some, some gratification emotionally, but it's not going to lead to anything, you know. So sex addiction is kind of, it just results in a lot of rashes. <laughs> How has your relationship to masturbation changed? I do try to be more creative and I try to be more alert as to like, well, you know, I'm not going to come to this one again because I already came to that. So I'm going to try to come to something different and I'm not going to. I'm not going to stop until I can do it, you know? So I'm like really going to be very... You're setting goals. I'm setting goals, but I'm also trying not to be so numb. It's also using my vibrators. Like I'm trying to switch to a different kind of vibration. So I, my recommendation for most people it, who like vibrators is to go to the erosolator because it doesn't numb you out as like other vibration does. It's so interesting because I, when I talk about sex with my friends or even you, it feels taboo in a fun way, mm -hmm. but discussing masturbation is like a bit too much for me, uh -huh. actually. Yeah. Like I still have that taboo. Yeah, I think it's, but I think it's a necessary part of sexuality, especially to kind of discover what you like so that when you have partnered sex that you can uh, instruct them on what to do and then maybe they'll show you what they need, which I think is what masturbation is really good for, is that it's going to give somebody this entry into my being that is very exclusive and very, very intimate and very important. And if somebody else can grasp that then and then possibly reciprocate, that's intimacy. You know, that's really true love if, if that was to exist, but that's what I think it is. Do you not think it does exist? I think it exists in, in ways. I think that there is love definitely that can uh, exist and has existed before in my life. But in my life, it's been very fleeting and really compromised also by uh, the necessity of togetherness, marriage, the kind of partnering that I'm trying to avoid. How many times have you been properly in love? Properly in love? Oh, gosh. I would say a good... 15 or 16 times Holy shit. in my life. But then it's been compromised by 
the situation at hand, by what we tried to turn it into, by whatever they were looking for, whatever I was looking for. It was always something that was stunted because of something that we were trying to force. 15 or 16 is a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. In like an impressive way. Like that's nice. Yeah, it's good because it's like, I do try to keep my heart open, which uh, can be challenging because you do get your feelings hurt. But it's also like, it's just sort of how I'd rather be. Have you seen a change in how receptive people are to polyamory? Yeah, I think a lot of, you know what? I think a lot of young people really idealize it. I think every young person does go through a phase like after the initial rush of their sort of sexual awakening, then they go into a thing of like experimental ideation, like whether it's polyamory or leather or fetishism or whatever, that they do want to go into a different sort of sensibility. And I think that a lot of people are very hooked into this idea of polyamory, especially because of the way that millennials that I notice have sex because of like the, the bounty that uh, the abundance of partners that are out there, you know, when you're presented with these apps, which I haven't been on yet, but I do know that they look and look and look and look and there's so many people. It seems like there's this infinite amount of people that you could do it with. So they want want to keep their like mind open to it. And I think people don't have practice in approaching someone in a bar because it feels uncomfortable mm-hmm. and like it's supposed to feel uncomfortable. That's yeah. okay. Yeah. But people just avoid that. Mm-hmm. I mean, like just for me, like one of my big pet peeves is meeting somebody out. They really are kind of standoffish and cold. And then later that night, they send you like a Facebook message like, hey, it was so nice to meet you. <laughs> we should get a drink sometime. I'm like we could yeah. just got a drink. I know, right then. <laughs> and it's so weird when you come from an age of like, we didn't have phones to hook up before. We couldn't get dick like that. We had to get dick by pounding the pavement and going and going to get that dick right face to face. When you're in that like mentality with, as I was for so long then, and dick is also, I'm just using dick as a, is it really is dick and the pussy gender and neutral whatever. Dick. Yeah, it's anything, but dick is sex. You know, so having that experience of knowing how you could get it before, it just seems like it would be hard for people who only have done it through like phones or social media. Another thing that society has caught up to you about is sex work. That's mm-hmm. been a really big topic of, of conversation yeah. lately. Mm-hmm. Um, how old were you and like, why did you get into it? Well, I got into it and I was into it with my um, friend. We'd gotten these jobs where we were phone sex operators, but then we got moved because we could follow a script and we started writing them. And so we did these like phone sex for English as a second language. And so it was like teaching English, but by using these like phone sex messages, it was really weird. It, we would make like $100 every time we did it. And so we do like three or four a day. And uh, so this was in probably like 90, 91. I'd started doing it. I was probably like 16 or 17. So it was the mid 80s. And it wasn't a big deal. And then I was, then I tried to be a dominatrix, but I was not very good at it. And I just didn't really, I appreciate like all of that, but I don't want to actually do it as a job because it's a lot of work. You know, taxing. To me, that was really way too much work. And I I just, I hurt my back and I don't want to do this. Being a dominatrix is also really emotionally taxing, right? Yeah. I mean, I really admire all of all of the doms that, that are out there. To me, it, it is, it's really amazing. You know, like I, I just, I, I wouldn't have the energy to do it. Most of the conversations I hear are about survival sex work, mm-hmm. which is very important to talk about. But it seems like people are less comfortable talking about women and men who just choose to like engage in sex work. Yeah, yeah. And there's a lot of people that just do it because that's just what they want to do. And I think that they should have the freedom to do that. And I don't know why anybody would be hung up on it. You know, to me, I think that's great. You know, if somebody is really 
enthusiastic. And, you know, I think that really meaningful engagement can come through sex work. You know, sometimes people have sex workers that they just really treasure and love. So, I mean, there's something that's really beautiful about that. I know that there's a dark side and of course there's a lot of exploitation and, and this isn't even getting into human trafficking or anything like that. That's not the issue that I'm, I'm thinking about when I think about sex work. I think about, you know, people who really just love it and that do it and that feel empowered doing it. And that's cool. I don't want you to think I'm calling you old because I don't think you're old. But <laughs> that said, do you feel like you're considered an elder in the comedy community? Yes. And that's oh, really? great. No, I love it. I love it. I think that's really important too. Like I think that comedy and, and older women, it's one place that we're really welcome in the entertainment. Our age is really an advantage. So it's what I learned from Joan Rivers, who was very adamant about that. Like they're always going to want you. And that's really great. And that's really true. And so I'm really grateful for that. I think it's really exciting too, that there's a lot of comedians nowadays who were really inspired by the fact that I got to do it. So that's that's my greatest achievement is that people were inspired. I almost have to let you go, but you've done so much in your career mm -hmm. and it's not anywhere near over yet. Mm -hmm. What do you still want to do? I would love to do um, anything. You know, I'd love to do more. I, I feel like there's a lot left to do and I just want to do it. And I, I don't care what it is. I just want to keep on. This has been so much fun. Thank you. Yeah, very great questions. I'm looking forward to this. Thank you. And that was the great comedian Margaret Cho, recorded in September of 2019. And then, as I mentioned, next week we're back with a brand new interview. It is somebody terribly interesting from the sports world. So stay tuned for that. And until then, if you enjoyed this interview, please share it with one friend. Just one. That's all we're asking. Doing things like that really are the biggest ways you can help our show continue to grow. So thank you, thank you, thank you so much for that. We're brought to you by The Advocate Magazine in partnership with GLAAD. I'm Jeffrey Masters. I will see you next week. Bye.